Hard Podcast, where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also Not Dead. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 11, Plans, recorded here on another rainy spring day here on April 25th, 2022. Thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E, and you can continue to check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Hummingbird, and our outro is Sacrifice to the Inhuman Creature. Our corrections today include these details. For all those Scantron exams in college where I answered B but was incorrect, the actual answer was either A, C, D, all of the above, or E, none of the above. And now we know, and and that's what higher education is all about. Michelangelo, the famous Renaissance painter, didn't graduate from Sheridan College. I should not have said that. And finally, it turns out that the California roll is not the right order for sushi. It has crab or sometimes imitation crab meat in it. And what I actually meant to order, apparently, was the Philadelphia roll, which has smoked salmon, cucumber, and cream cheese. And frankly, Philadelphia roll doesn't sound like an authentic Japanese sushi roll, but I haven't been to Japan or to the Philadelphia in Japan, so who am I to judge? Dinosaur news! Baby Matilda! The Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology released a new article called A Juvenile Diamantinosaurus, Matildae, from the Upper Cretaceous Winton Formation of Queensland, Australia, with implications for sauropod ontogeny on April 14th. The Diamantinosaurus is named for the Diamantina River and references the Matilda site from the Winton Formation, which was named after the popular Australian Waltzing Matilda song. So it's the Diamantinosaurus River lizard from the Waltzing Matilda site. Have I pronounced Diamantinosaurus correctly? I, I, I listened to some Australian YouTuber pronounce the Diamantina River. And maybe I'm giving it a bit too much crocodile dundee, or maybe I got it right, just right, I don't know. Diamantinosaurians, like Diamantinosaurus, were non-lithostrochian titanosaurs, meaning that they may not have had osteodermis and lacked the distinct lithostrochian caudal vertebrae, but are otherwise Cenomanian to Turonian-aged sauropods from South America and Australia, namely the Winton Formation in Patagonia, which indicates a connectivity between Australia in South America, likely via Antarctica during the Cretaceous period. You'll recognize them otherwise as titanosaurs, late surviving giants, perhaps 50 feet long, with small, somewhat elongated skulls, compared to other sauropods, with large nostrils and nasal bones that formed a crest on their skulls, and they had teeth that were somewhat spatulate and small. Their necks were of average sauropod length, and their tails were whip-like, though less so than diplodocids, who would have had a wide-legged stance, stocky forelimbs that were longer than their hind limbs, and perhaps no digits on their feet, but rather horseshoe-shaped stumps. The paper describes the first juvenile sauropod from Australia, which was found in the Winton Formation of the Cenomanian or Lower Turonian Ages of the Late Cretaceous. The remains were sufficient enough to classify it as a Diamantinosaurus matildae, the third specimen to be referred to the species, and offers a new diagnostic element related to the features of the scapula, which is great. The juvenile is morphologically different from the two other known adult specimens, including less well-defined or entirely absent muscle attachment sites on the juvenile bones relative to the heavily scarred and rugose 
adult specimens. The authors also say that the bones grew in a surprising way. The limb bones grew at a more rapid proportional rate than the other skeletal elements. It's like their big arms and legs stretched out quickly and its body filled in throughout its maturation. When an animal experiences growth in some features at one time and other features at other times, this process is called allometric, whereas if the features all matured in the same ways altogether into maturity, that would be called isometric. Think of like when puppies have giant feet before they grow into them. Uh, these no observations are beneficial because when viewed through the lens of other known sauropod ontogeny, or how they grew from their earliest stages into maturity, it shows that sauropods around the world apparently experienced growth in different ways. In other words, sauropods didn't mature with uniformity as a group, the paper says, quote, the growth patterns of sauropods vary greatly between taxa. This conflicts with an earlier hypothesis posited in 2016 and 17 that titanosaurs grew isometrically, the paper adds. The authors argue that, quote, when new juvenile specimens are found and examined, their osteological growth patterns should be determined on a case-by-case -case basis, and that, quote, until the growth patterns of more juvenile titanosaurs are determined worldwide, the isometric growth hypothesis proposed for Rapidosaurus cannot be extended to Titanosaurus in general, nor to all elements in any given taxon. The holotype AODF603 is housed at the Australian Age of Dinosaurs and is comprised of the right scapula, both humeri, right ulna, incomplete hands, dorsal ribs, and gastralia, a partial pelvis, and right hind limb. The new specimen, AODF663, nicknamed Oliver, is the juvenile specimen known from a cervical rib, two dorsal vertebrae, three dorsal neural arches, several dorsal ribs, and the left scapula, right humerus, right manual phalanx, and associated fragments. In other news, two gorge gorgosauruses. The Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology published a recent paper called Two Exceptionally Preserved Juvenile Specimens of Gorgosaurus Libratus provide new insight into the timing of ontogenetic changes in Tyrannosaurids on May 4th. Gorgosaurus of the Albertosaurinae family were Tyrannosaurs that were a bit more slender, with lower skulls and proportionately longer tibiae than the other Tyrannosaurines. But they were still members of the Tyrannosauridae, meaning they were almost definitely the largest predators in their respective ecosystems, bipedal, with massive skulls filled with large teeth. Adults had tall, massive skulls with many fused and reinforced bones for strength, and of course, they had that S-curved neck, a long, heavy tail to balance their huge heads, and much of their great mass was held over their hips. Their legs were long and proportioned for fast movement, and their bones were massive to support their weight. And of course, their arms were very small, bearing only two functional digits. Gorgos is Greek for terrible, and Soros, of course, means lizard in Greek, and Libratus is Latin for balanced. So... He's the balanced, terrible lizard. This paper says Gorgosaurus. Uh, Gorgosaurs are known from dozens of specimens, and, and they have, quote, arguably contributed more than any other taxon to our understanding of the life history of Tyrannosaurids, says the paper. It continues, quote, however juvenile material for this taxon is rare. Until now, I editorialized that last little bit. The paper describes, quote, two small articulated Gorgosaurus specimens, skull lengths of about 500 millimeters that help advance our knowledge of the anatomy and ontogeny of this taxon and of tyrannosaurids in general. The new specimens exhibit hallmark juvenile tyrannosaurid features, including long, low, and narrow skulls, large circular orbits, absent of incipient cranial ornamentation, xiphodont dentition, which means they are laterally compressed, sharp with serrated edges, and an overall gracile skull frame. 
The specimens are TMP 2009.12.14 and TMP 2016.14.1. And both of those are cataloged at the Royal Tyrell Museum of Paleontology, which is cool. These new skulls provide an opportunity to suggest that Gorgosaurs and the larger Tyrannosaurs experienced similar ontogenetic transformations of their skull as they aged. But Tyrannosaurs made those changes later in the growth process than Gorgosaurs. So they changed in shape in similar ways, but Tyrannosaurs made those changes at a larger body size and older age than Gorgosaurus. Gorgosaurs underwent major changes in cranial morphology through ontogeny, such as the deepening and widening of the skulls, development of cranial ornamentation, transition from xiphodont to encrasset dentitions, meaning the, meaning the teeth thickened as they matured, inflation of the paranasal sinuses, and the development of other features associated with a general increase in cranial robusticity, like the bracing of sutures and the absolute and relative increase in size of muscle attachment sites. This study also means that the known shape and size of Gorgosaurus skulls at juvenile ages is set, meaning other skulls can be positively identified by comparison. And the paper argues that in fact, they believe two specimens previously identified as immature Despletosauruses are instead Gorgosauruses. And with the corrections and dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen, joining me today is my good friend from when we were way back little kids, uh, Victor Yates. It's uh, great to have you here, buddy. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> uh, Victor and I met, can you remember this? We met way back in daycare. Do you remember way back then? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you're, you're my first, one of my first friends, a, a whole group of us. That's right. And at nap time, we switched out all the toddlers for Cabbage Patch dolls and then returned the toddlers to Toys R Us for full cash value. So that was pretty pretty rad. We made like 200 bucks that day. Yeah, and you know, the exchange policies were way easier back then. <laughs> we got Popeye cigarettes with the money. So... Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> easy come, easy go. It was good. So... Yeah, it was, a, it was a good W, that's for sure. But for real, yeah, it was uh, you and me, and geez, it was butter. There's a few of us from back in the day that were in that way back in, what was that, Sunny Time Daycare? What was it called? I, th I think it was, yes. Sunny Side something. Uh, it's gone there was now. Sun Involved in the, in the name of it. <laughs> well, so. after they, so you were just telling me in the in the bit of the pre-screening we were doing that uh, you actually managed to see the, the Jurassic Park film you're on the road, you're down in the States. How did you guys find yourselves down in the States in 1993? Yeah, like it was an annual trip for me and my family. We'd all hop in the Dodge Caravan and make our <laughs> way down through Pennsylvania, maybe to, maybe to Myrtle Beach or something. Mm -hmm. And just so happens that the week we were going down, that like the way we, the day we were going down was the day it was coming out. Really? And so just heading, heading down, we were bugging my, our parents the whole way that once we got to like the, the stop on the way that we would get out and try to get tickets uh and they said yes surprisingly and it was <laughs> just like one of those memorable times like, it was really 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 good and if we were in canada like I, if we weren't on the trip the mm. probability would be very low that i would even have gone to the theater to see it so mm. it just all worked out it was destiny pretty much <laughs> that's incredible so you might not even know what city you were in when that happened just Right. No, no, <laughs> so no and I, and I, but but I remember it was the they even had the chairs that like would rock back, and so you were super comfortable. Oh yeah, it was, it was really nice. Yeah, because not yeah, all the, the whole environment, not all the theaters around our area had the fancy seats. 
It took a while before yeah. we had like the Colossus Theater because before that we had to go to. Did you ever go to Rexdale to the uh, Woodbine Mall? Of course. Yeah, yeah, yes. that's where you saw movies before that, and that was not fancy yeah, movies. Yeah. Were you trying to steal the Mini Me stand-up cutout figure? Were you there for that? Austin Powers two, and somebody was trying to steal the Mini Me. I swear uh, that was at Rexdale that, as well. I don't know if I was there for that or not, but oh. I, either way, I wish I was. <laughs> that Woodbine Mall. So that Woodbine Mall, it's uh. There's still filming stuff there. Have you seen, I forget which police academy it is, but one of the first two police academies was filmed there. There's a chase sequence. Really? Tony Hawk and David Spade are skateboarders that the police academy recruits are chasing through, mm-hmm. that, through that same mall. And if you, I mean, the movies are horrible. But if you sit down to finally watch them <laughs> or something like that, it's one or two. It can't be number three because I don't think we lasted that long in watching them. But yeah, it, and you can't mistake it for anything else. It's obviously Woodbine Mall, and they're just riding skateboards through it. It's... Do, are, are they going through the Fantasy Fair? No. It's kind of where the elevators are. They go up and down in that kind of middle court. Mm. They're just kind of hopping around yes. in that. But we just saw the Fantasy Fair. Do you, you, uh, on CBC, they have a program called Pretty Hard Cases, and they uh, they had a chase sequence where they, they run through the Fantasy Fair, and there's all these dinosaurs that are out there, and they go on the train, and they go down the slides and stuff like that. It's pretty neat. Shelly takes the boys out of school once in a while to just have it like a, a, a day out with mom. And they oh, go to cool. that all the time. And uh, so we, we played that little clip for them, uh, and it was pretty exciting to see them. <laughs> it's tough when you see a show and they go through somewhere that's very familiar to you because you're like, that doesn't connect. Like you, you <laughs> when they run off scene, they, they reappear somewhere else. You know it's nowhere close to where they're supposed to be on set. But, yeah, it's pretty neat. No. No. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. I think I, I recently watched number one, so – I'll try, I'll see if it's a number two. I'll make the plunge. <laughs> Terrific. So, what was your first impressions when you, you got into this theater? Your, your parents—they shock you to let you in. You and uh, your brother sit yes. down in these comfy seats in a in a foreign yeah. land. And what uh, what happens? No, it's just like one of those uh, magical moments. The 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 stage packed or the theater's packed and. Mm-hmm everybody's anticipating this big event because there was so much hype going into it. Yeah. So, you know, everyone's pumped, like every scene, everyone's making noise and pawing and or yelling or, you know, really enjoying it. It's a great environment. Yeah. Do you have any first impressions you recall from, from being in the theater that day? <laughs> that, that would be it. Just excited. Yeah. I was excited. I, I was, it was probably, I was probably underage. I had to get parental <laughs> guidance to get, to get in. And so I was happy about that too. And I actually just recently, um, rewatched all of them with, with my You're kids saying. as well. It was so, um, it was funny when Adam mentioned that uh, a couple of episodes ago, mm-hmm. uh, and because I had done it around the same time as, as he was doing it. And yeah. so, you know, just, it was just great. We were going through like watching trilogies of like every single type of movie or series, like Lord of the Rings. And okay. I paused on I paused on Jurassic Park, and I was like, oh, I don't I don't know. It's pretty it's supposed to be because I hadn't watched it in so yeah, so yeah. long. I wasn't sure, and I was just like, oh, it's supposed to be pretty bloody. I remember it for being gruesome, mm-hmm. but it was amazing. It was amazing watching it again. Yeah. Um, after so long, and the kids sat through them. So, they they enjoyed them. Yeah. They, they, we watched all of them. They, they enjoyed them. Okay. It, it was good. No doubt. Do you, do you do them like in a marathon or do you pace it over a couple of days? Not a marathon. No. Yeah. I was going to say, no, get like a... in, in a day. Yeah. Over, over, 
a while, like a week, two weeks. Right now, we're right now we're in the X Men. Just if you want an update on the X Men, <laughs> I like it. so the the movies or the cartoons or the books. Or... Yeah, uh, movies. When um, when Sullivan got into superheroes, which you do when you're like six, I guess. Yeah, he he would like have questions, and and I mean he's still too young for the Avengers movies and stuff like that. He got pretty worked up when we watched Thor, and Thor dies at the end. Uh, before he comes back and harnesses the power of Molnir, but uh, <laughs> when he died, he lost it. Like he, he just he wasn't ready to grasp that yet, which is fine. But uh, it did come with this like whole. I mean, there's so much mythology and backstory surrounding all of those characters that I was like, all right, I guess I'll have to yes. figure out what this all is because I'll have questions or you had. I don't know. As a parent, you're like eager to like. This is cool because of X, Y, and Z. You got to tell them why it's cool, and so they just you, they can't just appreciate it. You got to tell them. Uh, which is, you know, probably a problem with me. No, 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 watch this. It's cool. Watch. <laughs> I'll tell you when it's cool. <laughs> In any case, I got caught up. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to have to figure out, what, you know, about X-Men. We'll figure this out. And uh, the short answer is there is no shortcut to learning anything about X-Men. There's so much. <laughs> so much. There's so much. So, much. Uh, so I didn't do that uh, effectively well. And then he, by the time I was probably well versed enough to say anything about X Men, uh, yeah, he grew out of it already. So, <laughs> but the movies, the movies are uh, a great way to return to the that material uh, with kind of a mature perspective, and so they're pretty neat in that. Your kids are just going through them now. I guess there's a bunch of them now, isn't there? There's so many. There's so many, and yeah, just going even through Jurassic Park mm-hmm. and watching them all like back to back essentially mm. like over over the couple of weeks it's like you actually you get to see like the dinos like the perception of the dinosaurs change like mm-hmm. the t-rex and the first one's like this evil like ah it's t-rex run mm-hmm. and then at then by the end of them in like the lost kingdom or whatever you're cheering them on to kill all the other bad dinosaurs yeah it's he's like, the hero yeah he's the he's the hero he goes from the biggest villain to the hero and same with the raptors like it's it's just Interesting how the dinosaurs yeah. characters develop it's, throughout it. It's a ridiculous balance they need to play when they make these films in that people go to see the dinosaurs. And so you can't just kill all the dinosaurs because <laughs> no. that's why people are there. You just killed them. I believe that's no fun. We wanted to see dinosaurs win because that's what everybody wants. But <laughs> so what do you do? <laughs> and so you get the dinosaurs to fight each other. And then the bat. So you make one dinosaur a bad dinosaur and then the other dinosaurs beat it up. And then, then we all cheer, and so that's how this this growth that the but dinosaurs it, but it eats the all the bad people, it <laughs> yeah. eats all the villains that's along right. the way that's too. Right. All the bad people are dead, and then the bad dinosaur dies too. <laughs> and every now and again, a nice guy dies, but that gets a, he gets to be a martyr. I guess no, well, that's not true. He doesn't die for his beliefs, but he dies because sometimes uh, it's funny, like sometimes it's comedy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was amazing. So in the first film, um, when Nedry, it is funny when he's kind of getting stalked by the Dilophosaurus, he's really, his his comedic chops are really good. Wayne Knight's always been a, a very, very good actor in that respect. And uh, you, he, you hated him as Newman, and uh, <laughs> and you hated him as Nedry, but he wasn't, he wasn't evil evil. He was just like a dick. <laughs> in yeah. any case, when the, yeah. when the Dilophosaurus comes after him, it's kind of funny. Like, it's a, it's a moment of levity. He pulls it off really, really well. And then it and then it switches the lever and he it becomes very gruesome quite fast. But yeah. yes, yes, still like you got to iso cam on your kids when the 
when the Dilophosaurus throws out its gills and it starts sp- <laughs> I remember that being like a jump in your seat scare, that's for sure. But if you know it's coming and you can watch yeah. the kids. <sighs> and then, yeah, and then they go out and, you know, it was like, then he attacked him in the jungle and you saw his mm-hmm. blood pour down the, <laughs> the river coming deep beside the, the tree trunk. Yeah. But yeah, no, you're right. It's fun watching everyone else in the room, knowing moments like that are coming, like the Velociraptors going through the kitchen. <sighs> that was another terrifying moment for the fir- first time watching it. Ooh, that was a scary scene. Yeah, so intense. I thought there, there's scenes where like so, the there's a solution swoops out of nowhere and saves the day. The T-Rex at the end that you're like, okay, that's kind of hokey. It's just you just jam it in there so you can get through this story. But when uh, when the raptor's chasing Lex and she's trying to pull that sleeve down to protect her and she can't get it down because yes. it's stuck, that that was just it wasn't even a trick. It was I guess a trick of the camera. But like that was one of those things where they get out of the situation that, where there was no escape. And it, it felt real, like oh my god, you got a second chance here. All right, run, run, run. <laughs> and, which is, and when you can pull something like that off, that's so much more powerful than just having, you know, oh my god, we're about to die, and then somebody swoops in and saves the day, uh, which and, happens yes. too often. And it, I don't know, that's I guess how writing's got to go. How do you raise the stakes where there's no hope, and then suddenly there is? Well, I guess you need to have a one in a million chance thing happen, and then you're okay. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yes. Yeah. What the, which those movies were good good at. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was always it's always like happy at the beginning and then within 15 minutes everyone's gonna die like everyone's in a lot of trouble pretty pretty quickly in the new ones too you get you get people who are like uh like at the opening of fallen kingdom when they have those guys in the sub and they're picking up uh the bones out of the bottom of that aquarium and you could just i think the latest ones have done such a good job with like with new lighting techniques when the so you'll have uh, just like a flare or something like that float up, and as it goes up, you just see the silhouette of of uh, impending doom behind them. And they do such a very good job of of these sneaky you know reveals. They're, they they didn't quite do in the earlier films, and uh, I've had a lot of people that kind of say, you know, the first Jurassic Park really felt like kind of like ET, and that it was this adventure and you're kind of exploring and like, this new relationship that you're having with dinosaurs instead of uh necessarily just running for your life all the time whereas the the, mm-hmm. the latest ones are they're straight up we shouldn't be here let's just get in get out as fast as we can and then everything on skull island decides it's going to come to life and chase you at all <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah their, their dinosaur reveals have been really cool i'm the scene where the baryonyx is coming up the tunnel and the lava's just lighting it a little bit it was really cool mm-hmm. they got a bunch of neat moments like that so after however many years it was where we had a bunch of middling jurassic park films and then jurassic world decides hey guys we're gonna try and do this all over again were what were your i guess first thoughts when jurassic world decided it was going to return to the screen a little skeptical yeah oh yeah. like like how how like all reboots are like mm-hmm. you know you're always a little skeptical to go see it but you know they're entertaining it's it's still you know dinosaurs and mm-hmm. same type of idea hey it was okay it was okay not like the first first ones but no. Well, that said, I mean, the second it, and the third were kind of eh, on stilts. <laughs> they're looking for their, they're still yeah. looking for their footing when they, uh, they came out. They, their premise were a little shaky, but this one, they really came back with like, hey, it's been, the park's been open. It's running just fine. We're having a good time. We, uh, we even got some new technologies we're working on that, are, that turn out to be <laughs> uh, <laughs> bad for your A little health. deadly. <laughs> yes. But I thought it was neat having a new park and having everything open. 
I just wanted like I remember I I got a message from Sean when uh when the first one came out. He's like, oh my god, I've never been so excited. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was one of those things where you thought the next Jurassic Park was coming after the first and the second. You thought, well, maybe it'd be two years or three years, and then it was longer, and then it was longer. And there was always this rumor that there was a script waiting to be put together, and then it just wasn't around, and then it was kind of off the radar and pow there it was and it came back and all that excitement returned it was really something and the idea that it was going to be a trilogy i think was really important as well it's pretty cool yeah yeah it's a, you know I, I like that franchise it's fun all those movies are great i i think like even though like the second and third were based off the first one they wouldn't be good standalones like mm-hmm. coming out with just that as opposed to maybe the first one um you know the whole series is great 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 family movies to watch <laughs> yeah that's right sure and and i think that's true i think the reason when we were kids that we were so excited for it to come out was because it must have been marketed very very closely for people our age like there's no way that we were that jacked for it randomly like it had to have been a huge marketing game but, but how much like i don't like i don't see my son loving dinosaurs as much as we did mm-hmm. growing mm-hmm. up like i feel like we love dinosaurs from like from Sunnyside or whatever the yeah, nursery school yeah, was. Yeah. Like, you, you, you really, you really love dinosaurs. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. You know, we all liked them and we all thought about them. <laughs> and as opposed to like today, like it's different. I'm sure there's still dinosaur lovers out there. So for, for sure, there is. So did your so your kids haven't gone through like the dinosaur phase, or they've kind of matured through it already? Uh, they may have matured through it. Yeah. I found they're in a video game phase now, which is you know usually lasts <laughs> a, a long time. Yeah, fifteen years. Yeah, I know for this for the same thing when uh, when Sullivan started getting into dinosaurs, we were watching like dinosaur trains, things like that. I was like, well, I'll go back, and uh, just like I did with the X Men, and I'll jump in and see what else. Yeah. Is, what, what's new? Because it had been, you know, uh, you had I guess back then you had books on dinosaurs, and you just read the books, and then yes. the store had better books and newer books and you didn't have those but you're like they're out there and then uh and then you know you go to college or you get your license and you just uh you don't follow that stuff quite as closely as you once did and but then 10 15 years pass by and uh, you get a kid the kid gets into the dinosaurs and so you, there's been like this this decade and a half where whatever they've learned about dinosaurs has changed for a long time and i remember looking back and that that most recent 15 years of what they've found about dinosaurs is mind-blowing is just unbelievable the internet's full of the coolest pictures you've ever seen you can find all the information you want is extraordinary and so like when i said there was way too much to learn about the x-men going back i'm still hoping that there will be a movie where i know the characters <laughs> they always have like a, an x-men movie like, I, I don't even know half these guys and i i tried hard to learn out who they were now when they come up with like new dinosaurs and stuff, they're like, wow, there's so much. They find so much stuff. They've made connections and, and, and assumptions and, and they've learned so many things. It's unbelievable. And um, it's been That's cool. so rewarding going back and looking at it. It wouldn't have been had you know the kids not gone through the phase. So that's been really exciting for me. It, it's, been, it's been wonderful to not have to go and buy a whole bunch of different encyclopedias or books on dinosaurs where you can just kind of literally interact with the paleontologists on on twitter or something like that if, if you get the chance that's wild yeah yeah it's really different than it used to be have you done that have you interacted with some paleontologists? yeah yeah, yeah. That's... um cool 
So when, when you look at the old film, everybody was head over heels for the Tyrannosaurus. Everybody loved yes. the Velociraptors. What dinosaurs kind of stick out in your mind that were done really, really well from that film that you liked the best? Did you, do you remember being, like, the Dilophosaurus was so good too, the spitter. They did a really good job of, like, yes. they, they only showed a couple dinosaurs, but they made them big stars. They all had their moments to shine. It was really cool. Yeah, like the like the, the first scene when they first find the dinosaurs. Like mm-hmm. I, I forget what the name, the one with the long neck. What, what one was that? The Brachiosaurus, yeah. Yes, so that that one was mm-hmm. amazing, right? Like the first scene of the opening scene of your first look mm-hmm. at your first dinosaur and that anyone's ever seen. It was awesome, and the just the expressions of even the actors too before they, you know scanned over to the dinosaur it was awesome mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i love how too um when the brachiosaur they have a chance to make the ground shake when it kind of steps down and they did the same yes. thing with the tyrannosaurus when it's walking you hear like every footstep like crunch it's really cool how they they really give them some presence like they look like they're big heavy animals right there there's no mistaking it right which i think you watch a lot of computer generated stuff like the running can get a little like marionettes <laughs> where the feet don't quite touch the ground right but uh, yeah yeah and like watching those old films like you appreciate some of that cinema mm-hmm. with with how they did the fx um mm-hmm. you know each each thing has its pros and cons but yeah that like you're saying just seeing the physical object as opposed to digital is just it's just cool too mm-hmm. i remember when we were last time at your place that you threw on Star Wars for us in the morning. And I remember watching the, <laughs> the first one and then, you know, just being in a blur and kind of... That's a rough at, one. That's a rough one. And looking at the screen and all I could see was the, the, the new modern CGI 2001 animals that Lucas decided to, to enter into the film when he already had like a, a pretty good film going. And then he just... <laughs> he's like, boy, you just, you just had to go back and put 2001 CG into that movie, did you? <laughs> and I got so angry yes. at that. Yeah, it looked it, that looked a little silly. But see, but it's amazing how all those years before that they were able to put them in, and they looked amazing. And it's so bizarre that you know Lucas goes back ten years later, and he, they still don't quite fit. It's amazing what Jurassic Park did. Yeah, they had really, really special people working on that program. Imagine Jurassic Park did that. Like they redid the first one and just threw some CGI. Oh, <laughs> they just threw some CGI dinosaurs in there. <laughs> How wild they could make it. <laughs> That'd be interesting. I heard, I was hearing that James Cameron was interested in doing Jurassic Park, and he obviously didn't do it. But uh, it makes you wonder, like, should, had George Lucas done it, he would have re-released, I don't know, how many different versions of the first film over and over with different, you're right, reordering the scenes, adding deleted stuff. <laughs> and you're right, they yes. have CG something, and everybody would be carrying walkie-talkies instead of rifles. And <laughs> if James Cameron directed it, what would that have been like? I don't know. Spielberg was great for that. He's he's a terrific director. I, I don't know how. For what it's worth, tough to say. The way the whole thing looked and the way the performances he got out of everyone on the on the set, I wouldn't have asked for anybody different. That's for sure. I don't think it was lacking in any way. That's yeah, yeah. And how much better could it have been? So, what other places did you go on road trips when you're taking your summer trips? Was like stopping for movies or things like that part of what you guys did when you were on your way down to Florida and things like that? Yeah, we'd, we'd usually go to like, and my mom would like go to an outlet mall. They weren't really popular back then in yeah. Canada. So like finding the best outlet mall and would be great. We went to uh, Frankenmuth, which has the world's largest Christmas store. 
Okay. It's great. It's huge. It's huge. We bought a singing tree there, which was also unusual at the time. Not a full one, though. It was like a mini tree, mini singing tree. In, in the same vein, we took a trip to New York City. And I think we took the trip to New York City when... So The Lost World... When did the book come out? The Lost World came out... 95. So The Lost World came out in 95. I think there was a strike. Maybe there was a teacher strike. And my folks took us to New York City or Washington, D.C. I don't remember which one. So the, uh, the hardcover I got for The Lost World wasn't available in Canada. It had been released in the States, but it had not yet been released in Canada. For whatever reason, books get distributed different. They get redistributed in like okay. England before they get released in the, in Canada. And so I happened to be in the States, and there it was, hardcover. And I, so I got it before, I guess, it was released in stores in Canada and read the bejesus out of it on the car ride home. And it was just the coolest thing having it. And the hardcover copy comes with... It's got like all these neat drawings of the dinosaurs and a map of uh, the island inside. It's super cool. Yeah, yeah, that's that. I had the hard copy too. It was a great book. I was just saying, I don't remember quite how it ends. I'm gonna have to go through that one after I do all this. Good old states <laughs> <laughs> hooking us up with dinosaurs when we don't think we're gonna get it. Yeah, yeah, nice. So you had a surprise Jurassic Park story in the United States as well, then. You know, yeah, and. I remember, I don't know which magazine it was. It might have been Time. And they actually had an excerpt from the novel in in the magazine previewing the upcoming film and book. So they were they were teasing the book and they had a, an excerpt from the when the two tyrannosaurs attacked the 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 trailer in in the second book. And uh, they just give you like a little taste of that. And I forget what magazine I was reading, but they had an excerpt uh, just to, to showcase what the book was going to be about. Or I, I don't know. I'm not sure exactly how, um, how, how magazines get paid to include content <laughs> in terms of marketing and stuff like that. <laughs> but there must have been some payola. But th- I think there were high hopes that the second movie was going to be, you know, as hot as the first one. I think there was an appetite for it. But it obviously was, it was so different from the second book and the first book that people started to go, what's going on here? <laughs> but pretty neat. <laughs> and Spielberg came back to do it. I was here just hearing that uh, Spielberg did the first movie, then he did Schindler's List, and the next thing he did, Jurassic Park 2. Can you believe that? No, wow. <laughs> yeah. Just an odd pacing for a guy that was so busy. Yeah. So you mentioned... Well, you, glad he came back. Yeah. You mentioned you, you had not read the book, but were there, did you have any wonders about the book? Like how it was different from the from the movie or I don't know did you ever wonder about it uh, well I didn't until you know <laughs> I, I listened to your first few episodes and I was surprised to hear how many scenes in the for in the first book are placed in other movies mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. are there other examples that you'd like to share or? so geez I, ha- I kind of had a running list so the beginning of the book is kind of like the beginning of the second movie there's still there's still lines that Malcolm gives in the book that are appearing in Fallen Kingdom five movies later, where so wow. he philosophizes on like why this park's not going to work 
and why we shouldn't have dinosaurs and all this stuff all the time. Just every time he's in a scene, he's basically breaking it down for somebody. Hey, this is what I think, and, and this is why it's a bad idea. He's, he's the philosopher. He doesn't seem like a mathematician. He really seems more like a, a philosopher throughout the whole thing. And so there was so much content where he didn't get a chance to use it in, in the first film. And then, of course, he was in the second film, but he was so... He was nothing like the first book in the second film, and I don't know why. I'm sure if I went and checked the second book over again, it would make more sense. And then... Yeah, he doesn't really reappear very much, but the lines he does show up, so he's like presenting to Congress, and um, he has this excellent line in the novel where it's a he's so he's uh, been kicked by the tyrannosaur, he's being uh, administered morphine, he's like fading away, but he's still just ranting about um, you know different philosophies and stuff like that, and how so the beginning of the book begins with like what they call a paradigm shift, and that's the idea that nuclear technology changed the world. The whole world now enters into a nuclear age, and it's different. And uh, now we're entering, and there was a computer age, and it's changed things. And then it makes the argument that the biotech age is opening a new door, and it changes. It's, it's a new paradigm, is what he calls it. And the paradigm just suggests that you, you're operating under new rules, basically, now that you're in a new age. Mm-hmm. And as he's fading away, he makes this comment that um, almost paradigm entering into a new one is kind of like death in that you don't know what it's like on the other side until you get there it's unpredictable and it, i guess it's in keeping with his character that the whole thing he's saying is that life is unpredictable you can't what, what is predictable is that you can't expect what to, uh, is going to happen his kind of fading thoughts one of the last things he says before he he dies at the end of the first book that's a big change <laughs> that, that is a big change <laughs> he uh he uh as he's fading away he he's um he's saying something about almost paradigm like he's almost there and at the same time he's not just saying that he you know they're almost in this new world where uh biotechnology has changed everything we, we're gonna have to learn how to you know operate all over again but he's also at the end edge of his of his death and he's kind of that metaphor was it's like one or the simile it's just like the same thing and as he's getting close to that doorway um he's just fading away saying who knows what it's gonna be like he uses that same line in Congress uh, uh, as he's saying, we should let all the dinosaurs die. Like, they don't belong here. And then he has some line, I forget exactly what it was in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the film, but it's along the same lines, like, it's a catastrophe, you'll never know what to expect or something like that. That's a big change. <laughs> but it's yeah, amazing. like, why, why do you think they kept them? Do you think they wrote, they're writing the screenplay and they like the character and they just... Well, trying to extend the characters. He's he drives a lot of the the backstory. He really is very important to to the narrative. Like, why is this about it? He, you need some doomsayer to warn you against what you're doing. Somebody told you so, kind of guy. So when people get their comeuppance, he's able to say, you know, as he comes up to you and says, "I'm gonna, you know, you're gonna be making all the same mistakes as Hammond, and I'm gonna be there when you figure it out." And then he gets to be the guy <laughs> who says that. It's the, the continuity of "I told you so." <laughs> But he is a cool character. He was beloved in the first film. Like, he was amazing. Yeah. Uh, and he had all the great... He had all really the best lines in the in the movie as well. Like, they gave Hammond a bunch of good lines, but the the best one he had... About look at, lifting up their skirts. Uh, life finds a way. Everything he mm, said. Yeah. yeah. Whether or not whether or not you could and whether or not you should, all his, he had all the best lines, and in fact, all the good lines that Hammond says. So there's a character they omit from the movie, 
uh, who is like the PR guy that gives everybody the tour. And so he's the one that has all the lines that Hammond is famous for saying, welcome to Jurassic Park and okay. things like that. These are all given by the, some PR guy that was given the tour. And uh, he becomes, basically, he doesn't want to be there. And he's, he's a coward. And he's the one that gets killed by the Tyrannosaur during the Tyrannosaurus attack. And he doesn't get killed by the big one. He gets killed by a juvenile Tyrannosaurus, like in the boat in the second movie. Mm, so it's, okay. am, it's amazing how many elements and scenes have been lifted out of that first book and put into subsequent films as a source text i think you have a responsibility when you make a jurassic park film to go back to the source text you know you got to go back to where it is and anchor your movie in in it or else you're gonna have a wildly different and speculative script that doesn't touch <laughs> what the universe is supposed to be all about but in the book is there any talk about cloning people not... Because they eventually clone the Maisie, yeah. I have some crazy yeah. theories about how that's going to play out. They don't. What they do talk about, and, and this is kind of where they get into the, the bioengineering of making monsters and stuff like that, is that they discovered that they built all the cages and built all the facilities to contain the animals based on what they presumed to know about dinosaurs. And then as they cloned them and discovered that they're faster, stronger, smarter, hot-blooded, everything they didn't expect they're they're a real challenge to contain and they're like maybe instead of changing all of the facilities and things like that because we're not prepared for them maybe we should dumb them down a bit give people what they expect and so they have this thing called version 4.4 and i guess as they as they clone dinosaurs they keep moving they they improve them a little bit here and there to make them i guess more resilient to infections and things like that and so there's this concept like maybe dumb them down so they're more controllable and hammond is strongly against it he's like I, I said make dinosaurs and you did it and this is perfect and this is what people want they want the real thing they don't want a, an illusion they don't want to be lied to and so he's dead set against um changing the dinosaurs but that is a big part of it and so they don't get into the cloning people part the whole premise of the book begins on the on the idea that as we enter this new age of biotechnology and uh that there are a couple things that are problematic with it one that a lot of people are working on it there is no oversight and frankly there's no rules on how to do it and so people are kind of whimsically operating in in dabbling in the field any which way they care to do and so that's where you're getting mm -hmm. bizarre choices and they, they mentioned something about having a paler type of trout or, or river trout so that you can see them when you're fishing better they're they yes. talking about uh, making uh, cubic lumber so that it's easier to stack <laughs> And I've heard of like, did you hear about cubic watermelon once upon a time? I, I, you know, I've seen a picture of it, whether it was did real you? or not, I heard or they different did... like shape of things. I heard it's they weird. tasted fishy or something like that, <laughs> but who knows if that was true. <laughs> I heard Japan had actually made like cubic watermelon, but nonetheless, so that's there. And, and I think a natural, so in the films, they adapt that to like military technology. Oh, they're going to use this with a military application because it'd be very profitable for some reason, but really yes cloning people isn't necessarily the the, the money maker cloning organs is and if you could somehow make a good healthy liver liver a good healthy heart i mean that is really where where the money would be that would be the where people at a heart would go and <laughs> invest the money right like how do you cure illness with uh biotech as opposed yeah. to the rest of it but hammond's a like a there's a whole scene where he's recruiting uh henry Wu, the geneticist and he's like 
I would never do something to help other people because there's regulations, there's protocols, people that tell you this. And if you try to make any money off of it, you're a, you're a cruel industrialist who has no heart because and you think, damn it, that's why I'm going to entertainment. I would never help people. It's the most irresponsible thing you can do if you're trying to make money. <laughs> and so that's, that's Hammond's philosophy. It's really interesting. But yeah, there, there are a couple of discussions on, on it. On that, they didn't get mm. into the cloning people, but it is all about cloning. It's not. They didn't just like the idea is that they take a sample of blood and they turn the blood of the actual animal that's in there. Like they dolly the sheep, that dinosaur. They don't create a dinosaur with the the genetic code. They yeah. Literally... Whatever, whatever happened to all the all the cloning hype that was, <laughs> was going? Like whatever happened to that sheep? Is it did it? Ha- I heard did dolly... it procreate. Did it just? What I remember, and people could probably correct me on this. I heard dolly the sheep like had had illnesses comparative to like geriatric illnesses at a very young age for no reason so it had like achy bones Mm and osteoporosis and and sore joints and it got it it didn't have good resilience like it wasn't healthy but it was exactly the same as the other sheep i guess if that's what you want have you ever have you ever seen a, a movie in 4d before what do they do to make it to the fourth dimension? Like the seeds move. There's air blowing at you. I feel like, like we went thunder. to yeah. I think we went to one. I want to say it was a Disney World or Disneyland, and and there was like supposed to be rats running in the seats, and so they put like little jets of air in your in your in the cuffs of your ankles, so they felt like there's something mm. running by. And I think they had a Mister. So sort of, but that was more like a ride than it was a a movie. How about you? Yeah, I, I went once. It was it was saw the uh, recent Spider Man movie, oh, no, yeah? no Way Home or something. Mm-hmm. And man, the 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 seats are flying around really so much, so much. <laughs> Can only imagine how it would be for a Jurassic Park movie. Can you imagine? Yeah, like when the when the uh, jeep is dropping out of the tree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or uh, yeah. the fuselage of the jet is being rolled by the Spinosaurus, and it's yeah. <laughs> You had to be on a whole roller coaster for that to work. Yeah, or like when the stegosauruses are attacking them, the, when they're taking pictures. <laughs> She's trying to run and they're whacking them. <laughs> Somebody comes and like really shanks you in the movie theater. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's so real. <laughs> yeah, this is crazy. <laughs> uh, only 20 people survived this theater. <laughs> 20 people went in the theater, only a handful survived. <laughs> yeah. Because it was in 4D. Yeah. Everybody, thanks for having Vic with me today. You come back and do it again. Yeah. All right, right on. After <laughs> after we watch the movie, we'll uh, we'll catch up on what you thought of the final installment of Jurassic Park Dominion. Yeah, I'd love to. Well, a great big thanks to my special guest and great friend Victor Yates for joining us. Wonderful to have him. I'm glad he got to use his real name. He was worried he wasn't going to be able to. So that was amazing. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Our text for this week is plans. Spanning from pages 52 to 58. The synopsis, Grant and Sattler receive a package containing the blueprints to Hammond's Island Resort. And its suspicious spaciousness and fortifications suggest it looks like a zoo with military upgrades. Before leaving on Hammond's chopper, Grant must secure a fossil on Hill 4, and with the use of a cast device, gets a good look at the Velociraptor skeleton and imagines what it must have been like in real life. And then he's whisked away by Ellie to get to Chateau by 5 p.m. Plot points. The plans arrive, but they're not what Grant and Sadler expected. 
we meet a velociraptor through Grant's imagination and learn that he hates computers, and they leave their dig site to reach Chateau in time to catch their flight. Characters. We have Ellie Sattler. Ellie delivers a manila envelope from Hammond to Grant. The envelope was brought in from town by, quote, one of the kids on page 52. She thinks the plans appear to represent a zoo on page 54. Later, she's insisting that Grant and she lead to the dig site to make it to Chateau by 5 p.m. to catch their helicopter. Dr. Alan Grant. He wonders what the hell Hammond has sent them on page 52. After reviewing the plans, Grant believes that Hammond is paranoid on page 54. Grant hates computers on page 55 and doesn't mind doing things, quote, the old-fashioned way. He's credited with putting to rest the common neck flexion in fossils. It wasn't poisoning. It was post-mortem contraction of posterior neck ligaments on page 56. And we get a glimpse into Grant's classroom where he teaches about deep time. Grant's incredible imagination returns envisioning an adult velociraptor hunting for our benefit. Grant's dream, remember, is to study infant dinosaurs, as mentioned on page 43, and how they were raised. And now he's admitting there's much that is unknown about young carnivores on page 57. There are theories based on contemporary examples like lions, but there's much they don't know. Quote, after 150 years of research and excavation all around the world, they still knew almost nothing about what the dinosaurs had really been like. On page 58, John Hammond. He says he's excited to have Grant and Sattler join his tour on page 52. It's believed that he's being paranoid on page 54. InGen, we discover here that it has a blue and white logo. Velociraptors. The velociraptors are described on page 55 as having a long neck. In the complete skeleton, the young specimen had a single-toed claw, which is six inches long, capable of ripping open its prey on page 56. The infant's claw is no larger than a rosebush thorn, a lightly built dinosaur, fine-boned as a bird, and presumably as intelligent. Pound for pound, it's the most rapacious dinosaur ever. About 200 pounds, they were quick, intelligent, vicious, with sharp jaws, clawed forearms, and devastating claws on the foot. They're pack hunters capable to pull down large prey. The, quote, kids. These are others working at the dig site, operating the cast, and doing other field work. How many there are is never said. None have names. They're just, quote, the kids, but... I presume they're over 21, either volunteers or also students, like Sattler, though perhaps not yet grad students. They don't like doing things the, quote, old-fashioned way, as described on page 55. We have some localities. There's Hill 4. A feature at the Snakewater, Montana dig site on page 55, we meet Hill 4, where they're using the Thumper, a computer-assisted sonic tomography device. The Isla Nublar Resort. Blueprints depicting Hammond's resort, including the guest facilities and the safari lodge, it's described as an inverted teardrop on the topographical map, bulging at the north, tapering at the south. It's eight miles long, divided into several large sections. The northern section is marked visitor area, containing structures marked visitor arrivals, visitor center administration, power desalinization and support, Hammond's residence, and the safari lodge, including swim swimming pools and tennis courts. The rest of the island is mostly open space, a network of roads, tunnels, and outlying buildings, and a long, thin lake that appeared to be man-made, with concrete dams and barriers. For the most part, the island was divided into six big curving areas, with very little development at all. On pitch 53. The curved areas are labeled P-slash-PROC-slash-V-slash-2A, also D-slash-TRIKE-slash-L5-4A-plus-1. There's no explanation for what these codes are, and it says that on page 54, and there's none that I've been able to decipher myself. Proc seems to represent Procomsignathus, Trike seems to represent Triceratops, 
Othan seems to reference Othnelia. Hatter is probably Hadrosaurs. But the numbers, like, I don't know if it's supposed to represent different species that are also in there or different versions of the animals. Um, VV here might be Velociraptor Valley, because that's something that's named, but that doesn't quite line up. Like, I don't know what these all mean. There's no real explanation. Um, but these sections are separated by the road network, and each section is separated from the road by a concrete moat. And outside each moat was an electrified fence. And the roads are raised up above the ground so you can see over the fences. That's what it says on page 54. So imagine that. When they go on the tour, they're able to look down from their cars into the pens or the, uh, the fields or over the fences past the moats. The main road runs north-south through the central hills of the island, including a section of road that seems to literally cut into the side of a cliff above a river, suggesting that preserving these massive paddocks was very important. There's a 30-foot-wide all-concrete moat and it reminds Ellie of a military fortification. And Grant agrees that each of the six divisions features a concrete bunker reminiscent of Nazi pillboxes from old war movies. But there is the Safari Lodge. This dramatic-looking long, low building has a series of pyramid shapes on the roof. Stylistic techniques that Crichton has used includes capital lettering to suggest formality and professional quality of the schematics. They were presented with titles in all capitals. The Isla Nublar Resort Guest Facilities, Full Set, Safari Lodge. Show, don't tell. Replicating formal documentation. The, quote, top sheet on page 52 is replicated and presented to the reader for their own digestion rather than being summarized by Grant's observations. So this is a good thing where I, I've liked this with Crichton a couple different times in another different books where he'll use a computer screen or a newspaper clipping or he'll present an actual document to the reader instead of having somebody read it or summarize it so you can digest it yourself. And I like that. It's that whole concept of show but don't tell in almost an even, like a meta level. So that's kind of neat. Crichton often has a very interesting way of reproducing documents and lettering them to tell the story rather than to describe the documents. He does this with excellent effect in his novel Next, where newspaper clippings continuously introduce new data and even plot points. And I think they use web pages in that as well, or Google searches or something like that. I can't remember. Ellipses. An ellipses is used. Grant is daydreaming. And he could have gone on and on and on if he hadn't been interrupted by Ellie. And that is implied by the use of ellipses, that he was interrupted, but there was more to be said. Pacing. The mysterious blueprints and topographical maps are interrupted by a muffled explosion, just as they were describing war movies. Then segues into someone yelling, fire! Pretty good transition and terrific pacing, once again. Crichton keeps the narrative driving forward, plus there's that interesting sonic graphic connection between the Nazi pillbox, Nazi war movies, and then fire and explosions. Isn't that neat? It's a clever way that, uh, clever, clever design that he's put, all, put it all together there. And again, we get Ellie calling to Grant, interrupting him from a dinosaur-fueled daydream on page 57, where he's just thinking about how velociraptors would tear at the belly of their prey when Ellie says, we're running out of time. So he kept things going with the pacing there. It's good. Ticking time bomb. To drive a story forward, the quote, ticking time bomb is often employed. It's a literary technique. It provides a deadline that causes characters to, quote, race against the clock, which raises tension and suspense and the stakes. And Crichton uses this, I've got a plane to catch moment in this chapter to drive forward some of the action in this chapter, on page 55, and drags the plot forward with Sattler insisting that they're running out of time on page 57. This is going to be reapplied later on in the book as there's this countdown to radio the mainland to stop the boat from landing to spare the world of velociraptors escaping onto the mainland. We'll see that later. 
Other literary techniques. We have the simile. Isla Nublar is shown as an inverted teardrop, giving us some shape of the island, like Nazi pillboxes in old war movies. This does a good job being both spooky, creepy, and unsettling, evoking more than just a military strategy, but by evoking Nazis, one of mankind's greatest evils, and perhaps putting them on the island. The island has an evilness to it. Or at least Grant looks at these things and sees something unsettling on Isla Nublar. The cast device looks like an ice cream vendor's push cart parked incongruously in the Badlands on page 55. This is done well because it gives us a great and familiar image to compare this strange and unfamiliar thing. And at the same time provides a bit of Grant's opinion that this thing doesn't belong here. And then it's mentioned there's a claw no larger than the thorn on a rose bush. Again, comparing something sharp and familiar with this strange claw. And it does it well. As well, it's a fine boned as a bird description. Gives us a feeling of for how lightly this animal is built, and perhaps some familiarity in its overall shape and posture. Parallelism. For the sake of comparison, Grant uses parallelism with escalating examples of how things change over time to great effect. The similarities in sentence structure make comparing the disparate lifespans very easy to mentally digest. An apple turned brown in a few minutes. Silverware turned black in a few days. A compost heap decayed in a season. A child grew up in a decade. That's on page 57. Each example escalates, illustrating time spans that we can easily grasp before jumping off the deep end and delving into an unfathomable concept of deep time on page 57. 200 pounds the size of a leopard is how a velociraptor is described on page 57. Again, gives us something familiar to describe something unfamiliar, in this case, the size of a velociraptor. And at the same time, Crichton uses a vicious hunter to help compare, offering more than a familiar size, but also a familiar temperament, a familiar behavior, and a familiar hunter. Discussion. So let's talk a bit more about paleontology that's presented to us in this chapter. It's revealed that once a fossil is exposed, it must be protected for risk of it eroding and becoming damaged on page 55. That's a neat insight into the field of paleontology. Hill 4 is another neat element. It's entirely common for informal site maps of dig sites to have localities all across it given frivolous names for the sake of reference, and they can range from as banal as Hill 4 and escalate into silly inside jokes like Mother's Day or Bill's Birthday or something like that, which are named after when the site was explored. In fact, as another Jack Horner reference, there's a paper entitled Taphonomy of Jack's Birthday Site, a Diverse Dinosaur Bone Bed from the Upper Cretaceous to Medicine Formation of Montana from April 1995, that's a dinosaur site filled with more than 1,600 skeletal elements, remains spanning from 3,000 square meters. It's named after Jack Horner's birthday on June 15th, which is likely when that site on the Two Medicine Formation was discovered. If you read The Lost Dinosaurs of Egypt, they have a lot of fun names for their various dig sites as well. In Egypt, on the Baharia Formation, they have John's birthday site, which was found on Matt Lamana's brother's birthday, as well as Lizard Ridge, the Happy Fish site, and the South Sauropod site. That's for the real-world examples of these funny names. And even in our news section earlier, in this very episode, the, the Diamantinosaurus Matilde species name, recall, was named in honor of the Matilda site on the Winton Formation. So there you go. However, Creighton's portrayal of paleontology also employs some new technology that's not quite working correctly. Can you believe it? Something not working correctly in a Creighton story? The thumper, or computer-assisted sonic tomography, uses sonar to create a digital readout of what's in the ground, similar to a computed tomography or CT scan. I'm not entirely sure this is actually a thing, and Crichton might be overreaching his understanding of paleontology by this point. 
There's a telltale indication that appears on page 56, where the cast process promises a, quote, whole new era of archaeology without excavation, which is perhaps informative because if you look it up, because if you look up computer-assisted sonic tomography, there's really no record of its application in paleontology because using an x-ray to look for rock inside a rock is problematic. You don't get much of a reading because it's like looking for jello inside of jello with an x-ray. But archaeology is the study of the ancient and recent human past through material remains. This might be an instance where Crichton discovered this neat technology and wanted to sound cool and cutting edge without really understanding it. Like, the difference between archaeology and paleontology are distinctly different. I don't think archaeology deals with fossils insofar as a fossil is a bone that's turned to rock. And archaeology deals with material remains, not fossilized bones, necessarily. So pots and cutting tools and cave paintings aren't fossilized, nor are they fossils. They are two categorically different fields of study, and Crichton may have confused them here. Uh, other paleontological aspects that are covered in this chapter include Grant's observations on taphonomy on page 56 and deep time on page 56 and 57, which are explained with apt consideration, I think. Defense! A continued consideration that something military may be going on is raised again in this chapter. Ellie describes the concrete moat like a, quote, military fortification on page 54. Then Grant adds that other buildings are also fortified, noticing that, quote, each open division had a few buildings, usually located in out-of-the-way corners, but the buildings were all concrete with thick walls. Inside view elevations, they look like concrete bunkers with small windows, like Nazi pillboxes from old war movies on page 54. Remember that Bob Morris wondered if there were a military concern regarding Hammond's in intentions out there on page 39. He's investigating on assignment from the Office of Technology Transfer, the OTT, which monitors shipments of American technology that may have military significance, and that was on page 39. The stockpiles of amber that Hammond is making were considered for their defense value, but none could be discerned. This military theme certainly exists in Jurassic Park, however loosely. It's not crazy for someone to have read this novel and adapted a script to employ the genetic technology InGen was creating and applying it with military purposes, whether you like Jurassic World's militarization of the raptors or not. That's something that is rooted in this text. Ellie Sattler. Hammond's letter to Grant and Sattler is addressed to the both of them, and was intended to arrive prior to his phone call, in which he invites them to his inspector's resort. So it appears it was always his intention to invite them both, suggesting that Hammond himself is not meeting Sattler for the first time. The letter proves that she has in fact been a consultant on his project for all these years, on page 52. It was my calculation in the last episode that Sattler was entirely unqualified to be one of the park's original consultants, but perhaps somewhere along the line Grant helped bring her on board as one? I still don't believe five years ago as an undergrad at 19 years old that Sattler was hired as a consultant paleobotanist for InGen. That doesn't make sense. Either there's more to dig out of this Either there's more to dig out of this, or to explain away through headcanon, or it's Crichton's mistake. Let's keep an eye on that one. Neither Crichton, Sattler, nor Grant suggest that she is yet a doctor of paleobotany. Later in the novel, only Hammond, Tim, and Gennaro refer to Sattler as a doctor, and note that none of them are doctors themselves. None of them know Sattler personally. She doesn't get a backstory, so we don't know quite how her career has come up through the novel. I don't know that she is a doctor. And I stand by that. Easter eggs. While digging through the top sheet that lists the different contractors for Jurassic Park, there are some interesting details that further flesh out the world of Jurassic Park. The architectural firm is Dunning, Murphy, and Associates. And we know that there are a few children, Lex and Tim Murphy, who are Hammond's grandkids in this novel. The Murphy mentioned 
in this architectural firm based in New York, I'd like to think is Hammond hiring his son or perhaps his son-in-law to do the work. And that's on page 52. The name Richard Murphy, this name's Richard Murphy as the design partner. Lex wears a Mets baseball cap, which is the New York Mets, further strengthening this argument that this architectural firm based in New York and the grandkids from New York, I, I think Dunning Murphy and Associates refers to Hammond's probably son-in-law's architectural design firm. I think so. We get InGen's local address, Palo Alto, California, and we know that the Japanese investors were the only parties interested in supporting Hammond's vision for Jurassic Park. And as a result, the mechanical engineer, landscaping firm, and electrical firm all appear to be led by people with Japanese names and be based in Osaka and Kanazawa, respectively both in Japan. I believe Hammond's bungalow was also designed or decorated in a Japanese style. So you can see that the, this Japanese influence permeates throughout the, the entire island and its construction and its design. That's based on who was investing in the park. So that's interesting. Finally, our first mention of the computer programmer from Integrated Computer Systems, Inc., on page 53 from Cambridge, Massachusetts, is named, and he is overseen by Project Supervisor Dennis Nedry. So those are kind of neat Easter eggs that just show up in this, this one page where they're going over the top sheet uh, and the different plans that are in there. So plans, and we get these neat Easter eggs. I think it's fun. Revenues, guests, and park design. So presumably, they're going to be demonstrating to Gennaro how to generate revenues at the park to reimburse investors. And that never comes up in this book. This is exclusively about how dinosaurs are controlled, which is kind of strange. Right now, the business model is, dinosaurs are so cool that if we make dinosaurs, surely we'll become rich. That said, how does the park expect to generate revenues? There's no real mention of a hotel, no mention of restaurants, no mention of shopping. And it's also said that the dock doesn't have sufficient storm protection because Hammond didn't want to pay for it, meaning in rough weather, they can't reliably dock at the park. How on earth are they going to get visitors on the island? Is everyone coming in by helicopter? Are there complications with that? What's the guest capacity at a resort like this? We know that not all the guest facilities are listed in this section. The Teratops Lodge isn't listed, and the restaurants aren't listed. We know that it's a facility on the island, but like, how, how are revenues going to be generated? Like, they're a year out from opening, and there are no marketing materials, we're told. Ed Regis says he hasn't got them done yet, because he can't tell anybody what the secret is yet. This is wildly behind schedule and absent of any park design. The logistics of shipping everything on location and conversely shipping all waste away is equally problematic. Connection to the film. This chapter gives us one of the most direct connections to the film yet. With Grant struggling to make computers work out in the field as they uncover a velociraptor skeleton. But they're very different what you get in the film and what you get in the book. So let's check it out in a deeper dive. More like an oversized turkey. <laughs> Who hasn't? been accosted by an ill-mannered malcontent with a snippy remark meant to imbue nothing but malice. We all have. Being on the receiving end of these insults is unfair, and there's, there's nothing finer than to see them rebuked with a fitting dose of humility. Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park serves up a delightful dose of justice that we can all fondly remember. Fans of the Jurassic Park film can vividly recall the dark-set eyes of a pudgy kid in a striped shirt quipping at Dr. Grant, that doesn't look very scary. More like a six-foot turkey. This moment was adapted from Michael Crichton's 1989 novel Jurassic Park with a very similar quote which says, doesn't look very fearsome to me, and that's on page 57. The scene in the novel is similar in many ways, but in the adaptation for the film, Spielberg 
made a lot of changes. This quote represents the first and most distinct scene to be directly adapted from the novel into the movie, and the similarities illustrate this moment's importance while the differences show what it takes to adapt a scene to the big screen. To summarize, in the novel, Dr. Alan Grant is performing field work in Snakewater, Montana's remote badlands, using computer-assisted sonic tomography, CAST, technology to identify the size of the fossil they've discovered. The computer produces a glimpse of a beautifully defined, perfect resolution image of the long neck and arched back of an infant velociraptor. It's suggested that the remains are in perfect condition. Uh, as implied in the quote, and it looked imperfect, and he's cut off. Um, he, Grant becomes just interrupted there. Common practice is to protect an exposed fossil from weathering and erosion by covering it with a tarp and digging a trench around the perimeter. The infant specimen is clearly visible to Grant. The operators aren't familiar with the genus Velociraptor anteropus. And then one of the attendants finally says our famous line doesn't look very fearsome to me. On page 57, Grant agrees with the attendant and mentally recalls how an infant might have behaved, and then considers an adult velociraptor, quote, another matter entirely. Grant imagines the deadly, horrifying behavior and features of a velociraptor. Ali Sattler interrupts his daydream, reminding him they've got a flight to catch, and so, so they've got to finish their work. The film recalls this scene with many similarities. In summary, in the Badlands near Snakewater, Montana, members of a paleontological dig are dusting away some grains of sand from a fully articulated, perfectly preserved, fossilized skeleton of a mature velociraptor. Grant says he dislikes computers, and Ellie says the feeling's mutual, laughing at his naivete with computers. Using sonic tomography, a technician produces an image on screen, which Grant describes. However, his interaction affects the image fidelity on the computer screen, and everyone gets a laugh that he's basically a Luddite. Grant observes that the Velociraptor's wrist structures show clear evidence of the progressive evolution towards avians, which garners a snicker from those around him. Then he makes his argument about the bird-like qualities of dinosaurs to the crowd, but is interrupted by a rude kid credited as boy. That doesn't look very scary. More like a six-foot turkey. Grant digs deep into his imagination and describes a velociraptor, its behavior and what it might be like when it hunted. Grant intentionally makes it gruesome and personal with boy and teaches him a lesson in respect to humorous effect. This quote represents the first scene to be directly adapted from the novel into the movie, and the similarities illustrate this moment's importance, while the differences show what it takes to adapt a scene to the big screen. These similar quotes share many similarities in their respective texts. In both moments, Grant's character as a dinosaur expert and a technophobe are presented. Velociraptors are introduced as worthy villains, and an interruption from a kid spurs much of the exposition on velociraptors. Even some of the narrative in the textual written word are similar, though rewritten. There's also a common contrived error put to use in both scenes, too. Both the novel and the film use the moments surrounding this quote to reveal two important elements of Grant's character. His proficiency as a dinosaur expert, and his deficiency with emerging technologies. In the book, his dinosaur expertise shines through his inner monologue about, quote, geologic time, his pedagogical strategies for expressing geologic time to his students on page 56, and his theories on infant and adult velociraptors on page 57. Similarly, in the film, Grant surveys bone shapes in the wrists, the pubic bones, and the vertebrae to corroborate Ellie Sattler's interpretation of the fossils as a velociraptor. But most importantly, he presents his carefully considered argument that velociraptors 
are closely related to birds. And then, of course, his memorable role-playing about a boy being hunted by a velociraptor, which demonstrates his considerable insights into velociraptor behavior. Being bad at technologies is Grant's character flaw and weakness. In the novel, Grant's deficiency with technology is revealed as the sonic tomography machine, quote, acts up a bit. And he admits, I hate computers, on pages 54 and 55. Crichton later delves deeper into Grant's irritation with computers, freely admitting that it makes him, quote, old-fashioned, but he has no intuition for computers and finds them, quote, alien, mystifying machines that leave him, quote, confused and disheartened, literally lost in a foreign geography he didn't begin to comprehend on page 126. That's later in the book. When Grant suggests, quote, doing it the old-fashioned way, a colleague's response is, aw, Alan, suggesting that he's at a technological disconnect with his students and support workers, who prefer to do digital work as opposed to the considerably more difficult labor of chiseling and removing solid rock. In the film, when it's suggested that sonic tomography might become so successful at revealing fossil detail that extracting them from the rock may become obsolete, Grant suggests, quote, where'd be the fun in that? serving as a passive-aggressive argument that he's resistant to embracing new technologies and computers. We can accept that in 1993, being, quote, old-school was considered okay and, and even heroic. The opposite of old-school was considered wimpy. This is an outdated, binary sort of okay-boomer perspective, of course, but one that Hollywood and Spielberg aptly co-opt for the purposes of succinct storytelling. Let it be, you know, shown that, you know, one could argue that Hollywood has a long and problematic history of employing stereotypes and common tropes to expedite storytelling. In other words, Grant's passive-aggressive rejection of using higher technology in preference for, quote, old-school methodologies displays open contempt for computers and new technologies. Thus, he's definitively derisive. In the novel, Grant is interrupted by a, quote, kid which spurs him into imagining velociraptors and serves Crichton the opportunity to present the to present this dinosaur species as a worthy villain. Here's the quote. On page 57, pound for pound, a velociraptor was the most rapacious dinosaur that ever lived. Although relatively small, about 200 pounds, the size of a leopard, velociraptors were quick, intelligent, and vicious, able to attack with sharp jaws, powerful clawed forearms, and the devastating single claw on the foot. Velociraptors hunted in packs, and Grant thought it must have been a sight to see a dozen of these animals racing at full speed, leaping onto the back of a much larger dinosaur, tearing at the neck, and slashing at the ribs and belly. In the film, Spielberg uses this quote to do the same. Grant says, You stare at him, and he stares right back. And that's when the attack comes not from the front, but from the side, from the other two raptors you didn't even know were there, because Velociraptor's a pack hunter. He used coordinated attack patterns, and he is out in force today. And he slashes at you with this six-inch retractable claw, like a razor on the middle toe. He doesn't bother to bite your jugular like, say, a lion. No, no. He slashes at you here, or here, or maybe across the belly, spilling your intestines. The point is, you're alive when they start to eat you. In both cases, velociraptors are described as dangerous, coordinated pack hunters with deadly claws and worthy villains to the story. In the novel, the introduction of velociraptors as a worthy antagonist is, is interrupted by a kid who says, doesn't look very fearsome to me, on page 57. The thumper operators are also called youthful attendants on page 55, so you consider them not necessarily, quote, kids, but something similar to your stereotypical high school AV club members, four-eyed geeks who are more comfortable with their laptop than playing sports. 
they set up the thumper and keep it operating for Grant. Uh, the film almost presents this moment the same way, which provokes Grant to terrify the child. At some point in the adaptation of the novel, the kid operating the thumper was taken literally and birthed into a contrived character concocted to dramatically contradict Dr. Grant, but subtextually serve as a mechanism to introduce velociraptors as a villain. The scene works, but it's so far from realistic or natural that it's ridiculous. But hey, it's fun to watch and a genuine highlight in the film, which is something to say about the performance considering the blockbuster movie featured the most realistic and terrifying depictions of dinosaurs ever. Another similarity is in the verbatim words used in the film and the novel. In the novel, it reads, there was a slight vibration and then yellow contour lines trace across the computer screen. This time the resolution was perfect and Alan Grant had a glimpse of the skeleton, beautifully defined, and the long neck and the arched back. It was unquestionably an infant velociraptor, and in the film it says, it's a little disturbed, but I don't think it's a computer. And Sattler says, look, post-mortem contraction of the interior neck ligaments. Velociraptor? Alan Grant says, yes, good shape too. It's five, six feet high. I'm guessing nine feet long. Look at the extraordinary, and there's a hyphen. Even he's cut off. So it uses even the same hyphen. You can see how very similar these are. A final similarity in these scenes is a problematic one, which is a minor contrivance in the source text that becomes amplified onto the big screen. In the book, the problems begin with the technologies and methodologies employed for excavating a fossil. The practical application of the methods described by Crichton would not only be impractical, but impossible. In the novel, the exposed fossil being uncovered in snake water is the jaw and dentition and Grant hopes the remains are undisturbed, meaning he hopes to find an entire skeleton. This is set on 43. He believes the specimen belongs to an animal aged, quote, two, maybe four months old, quote, at most. The specimen's age is further corroborated as a, quote, young specimen on page 56, considered an, quote, infant, whose raptorial claw, the famous six-inch curved claw on a raptor's foot, is, quote, hardly visible at all on the screen of the computer-assisted sonic tomography, and, quote, no larger than a thorn on a rose bush on page 56. And it's later said to be, quote, a baby on page 57. Lead geneticist Dr. Henry Wu says later on in the novel that the dinosaurs matured rapidly, attaining full size in two to four years on page 106. And Grant says a full-grown velociraptor was approximately, quote, 200 pounds on page 57. So even a fast-growing infant velociraptor might only be about five to 15 pounds given the metrics provided by the text. This fossil is at its largest the size of a puppy and probably even smaller and comparable to the size of a chicken or a chick. Given the textual description, envision the visible fossilized remains as a beak-sized piece of jaw with teeth in it, a thimble-sized fossil. And the lead paleontologist, rather than digging around it the, quote, old-fashioned way, is opting to put a thumper on top of it to get a digital reading of the unseen chick-sized remains entrapped in rock. The purposes of using the thumper is to confirm the extent of the fossil's size so an adequate trench can be dug around it and an adequate covering or a tarp could be placed on top of it to protect it from further erosion so that the fossil won't be harmed before it can be properly excavated. If the fossil is at its greatest possible size only as big as a puppy and their ambition is to protect the fossil from harm, why would anybody detonate a sonic tomography device on top of it? The reader is asked to believe that all this is done to provide a more specific view of the dimensions of a fossil that, if fully articulated, would have been between the sizes of a chick and a puppy. It reads as if Crichton had researched some interesting new technologies that paleontologists were or were about to start using in the field and applied it in the text 
but in practicality is just a contrivance of the novelist, sticking it in here to make use of the good research he'd done rather than to let it go to waste. In the film, it's no different. In fact, it's doubled down on the sonic tomography and put the fossil on steroids. In the film, there are two fossils. The first is almost entirely excavated with a few brush strokes, revealing a fully articulated adult specimen. It's already perfectly visible to the naked eye, and unbelievably, no rock had to be chiseled away to reveal a museum-quality, fully-prepared skeleton. It's basically impossible, but this is how Hollywood gets it all wrong. Uh, the second fossil is revealed after the cast device is detonated over a dusty, flat section of ground that offers zero indications that there may be a fossil located underneath. There are two problems with this scene. The first is that the dig crew is nonchalantly uncovering probably the greatest fossil ever discovered with merely a few brush strokes. And the second is that they would be detonating a cast device just here and there around the Badlands, hoping to locate a fossil. The Badlands are vast, and to be using the device to hope to discover a fossil here and there is absurd. Paleontological fieldwork begins with identifying an area that is known to be fossiliferous, or is suspected to be so, and then surveying the ground for signs of fossils. Generally, after a landslide, heavy rains, or other forms of geomorphology, field surveyors walk the badlands inspecting the ground for a fossil breaching the Earth's surface, which is like finding the X that marks the spot from a classic tale of buried treasure. And using the cast device is no more uninformed than randomly digging straight down hoping to find a treasure. That's... how's that working for the blokes over at the Curse of Oak Island? Spoiler alert, it's not. In both cases, from the novel and film, using a, quote, thumper to blast a charge into the ground for the purposes of computer-assisted sonic tomography is dramatic overkill. For the novel, it'd be like using a huge ball of fire to see what's in the refrigerator. The subject being viewed would be totally destroyed. For the film, it's like using the claw crane arcade game trying to get a specific prize, but you're blindfolded, and also you were blindfolded before you entered the carnival, and you don't know where the claw crane machine is located. I mean, you'd never find a fossil without incredible luck on your side. No, not a good way to spend your limited funds with limited time. But the logic of it all falls to the wayside because this scene and the thumper are only in the text because it's important for readers to understand Grant's character flaw. Grant is old school, and he hates computers. While it's a strong moment for character development, it's practically nonsensical. It's obviously a contrivance shoehorned into the text without good reason or practicality. Yet, however contrived, this moment still reveals a variety of consequential character traits for Dr. Alan Grant and the Velociraptors. The differences in how this quote is portrayed between the film and the novel exemplify what Spielberg prioritized in adapting the scene for the big screen. Spielberg's film lifted this specific quote and corroborating scene directly from Crichton's text, but made obvious changes for the adaptation, marked by omissions and inclusions. The omissions remove from the film the rich background, context, and narrative that Crichton prepared for the novel. Most notably is the mystery building Crichton performs to add intrigue and suspense in the novel's first third. The inclusions in the film are to more quickly introduce Alan Grant and the Velociraptors. First and foremost, the most visible difference is the verbatim quotes adaptation from doesn't look very fearsome to me and that doesn't look very scary. Uh, they aren't identical, but are obviously similar, acknowledging that a reference to the source text is being made in the film. The film adds more like a six-foot turkey for extra punch. In the novel, the quote is fitting. A technician, referred to as one of the kids, one of the kids operating the thumper sees the image of a chick-sized infant on the computerized display screen and feels that the mere rosebush thorn-sized sickle claw, compared to the Velociraptor's reputation as a fearsome hunter, 
doesn't look very fearsome. The quote sparks Grant's imagination, and he mentally recalls how fearsome adult velociraptors were, though he doesn't speak any of that out loud to the technician. The film adapts the one of the kids reference to literally some kid called boy and supercharges the drama to make our hero cool by employing his love for dinosaurs into a vehicle to dole out poetic justice. In storytelling terms, Spielberg's choices are pretty solid. With regards to this scene, the most notable difference between the novel and the film is the omission of mystery building that Crichton employed in the first third of the book. In the novel, Grant and Sattler are provided by Hammond a package of schematics, which they review. They are confused why the resort's infrastructure resembles a zoo and employs so many security measures. The chapter itself is named Plans, drawing further focus on the importance of these schematics and why they intrigue our protagonists. This indicates the importance Crichton placed on mystery building. For further context in the novel, Crichton builds a captivating mystery shrouding the true purposes of Hammond's resort. Mysteries surrounding Hammond's ambitions pull readers through the narrative, all teasing the fact that Hammond has achieved the impossible. He's cloning dinosaurs. But that is not revealed by Crichton in the early pages of the novel, and our protagonists are not privy to such information. Even the name Jurassic Park is not common knowledge. And even if the name Jurassic Park were public, Jurassic as a term pre-1993 was nothing more than paleontological industry jargon, whose meaning was mostly inaccessible to John Q. public, I would imagine. Yet even the name was kept a closely held secret. The film differs by skipping this moment with the plans and is far less focused on mystery building. In fact, in the novel, Hammond has already invited Grant and Sattler to his resort, whereas they have yet to meet him in the film. Other omissions removed from the film include the rich background, context, and narrative that Crichton prepared for the novel. Most notably is the mystery building, but Crichton uses this scene to enter into greater detail regarding the mechanics of sonic tomography technology, on page 55, the perception and comprehension of deep time, on page 56, and Grant as a professor, on page 56, and expedition leader, on page 55. These changes come as little surprise. Everyone who's read a novel and seen the film adaptation of any kind acknowledges the book was better because there was so much more depth provided in 400 pages than can be offered in an hour and a half runtime of a common film. Losing some of these details is no big deal. The film loses little in the way of believability by not understanding some of the finer technological details of paleontology and pedagogy in the paleo classroom. In practice, a movie maker really can only add these greater details into a film through the colloquial inclusion of the Easter egg, which are basically set decorations or audio cues included to specifically reference textual moments that there is no time to cover through dialogue one would only discover the Easter eggs if they were closely aware of the source text. Other adaptations were employed by Spielberg to make introductions to Dr. Alan Grant and the Velociraptors more, quote, film-friendly. In Jurassic Park, the Badlands scene is Dr. Alan Grant's debut in the film and the opportunity to reveal his character and interpretively represents what Spielberg believes audiences need to know about Dr. Alan Grant. He is an old-school paleontologist and dinosaur lover with newfangled ideas on dinosaur behavior who hates technology and dislikes children. In Crichton's novel, the text has already spent two chapters introducing Dr. Grant with The Shore of the Inland Sea, on page 31, and Skeleton, on page 42. Grant has already been drawn into a series of mysteries that he doesn't yet know are related. An unusual dinosaur-like reptile specimen from Costa Rica is brought to his attention, and an EPA investigation on the legality of John Hammond's island project. This chapter further elevates the mysterious island by producing schematics for Hammond's resort, which contain unusual features, piquing Sattler and Grant's interests. 
Another big difference with the novel and film is the portrayal of Grant being derisive of computers. He is passive-aggressive with computers in the film, avoiding them with a latent insecurity showing a true weakness in his character. In the novel, he has a greater appreciation for those who, quote, have a real feel for computers and intuition, but he regrets that he, quote, never felt that on page 26. The world of computers is mystifying and alien to him. He accepts that, knowing that it makes him, quote, dated as a researcher. In both cases, his technophobia is a considerable weakness that affects the plot with regards to restoring power to Jurassic Park after the storm. But in the novel, this is a weakness that is affecting Grant's career, being a scientist and academic who is unable to adapt to using computers and technology to help perform calculations and analysis will leave him in the lurch while others in his field will launch past him. All things considered, his lack of computer literacy is jeopardizing the future of his career and with technology advancing so quickly, he might move beyond old-fashioned and become out of date sooner than he imagines. At Jurassic Park, the speed of technology and dinosaur cloning makes the end of his usefulness as a paleontologist suddenly seem much more imminent. This is an element of Grant's character novel readers are made to feel sympathy over. The film presents Grant's weakness as a heroic trait and, quote, technology as the villain. Plot devices like over-reliance upon computer automation leading to catastrophic failure, and obviously cloning behemoth carnivores that turn on their makers, suggest that technology is the villain that led to the inciting incidents in the film. Grant is the hero who sagely cautions against trusting technology. In the memorable moment in What's So Great About Discovery, when Grant cautions, how can we possibly have the slightest idea what to expect? The film's adaptation of this scene also employs a significant change in the Velociraptor fossil. Obviously, the fossil they're excavating in the film, a fully articulated, exquisitely preserved and semi-prepared adult Velociraptor specimen, is different from the chick-sized Velociraptor infant in the novel. How a Velociraptor hunts and attacks is different. In the book, they're described as, quote, running at full speed, leaping onto the back of a much larger dinosaur, tearing at the neck and slashing at the ribs and belly. Whereas in the film, the hunting is a coordinated pack attack, where one lays in ambush and the others strike from their hiding places. The size difference between the fossil in the film and the novel is again for the purposes of succinct storytelling. It's far more impactful in a visual medium to express the fearsomeness of the film's villain by panning the camera over its jaws, teeth, claws, and talons than it is to portray the tiny, immature features of a chick-sized animal. The concept of show-don't-tell is put to good effect here. The movie adapts the source text for the screen using the show-don't-tell philosophy, and while the adaptations rely on contrived elements and significant fallacies, it all works exceptionally well in a dramatic, well-paced scene that introduces the essential character traits of our protagonist, introduces the film's antagonist, and even sets up a few moments that will pay off later in the film. In this short scene, three elements are he heavily contrived. The boy, the velociraptor fossil, and the thumper deliberately created to such a degree that they seem artificial and unrealistic. The boy who interrupts Dr. Grant appears out from a crowd and offers up a straw man argument giving our hero the perfect opportunity to dunk all over him. It's noteworthy that nobody in this scene was suggesting that the Velociraptor had to be scary, or that it was scary, but this kid barks out his contentious remark anyhow. Why some kid, on site, two months into an excavation in the Badlands, considered remote hard terrain, makes no sense. Why that kid would act out against the lead paleontologist on the site at the same time is equally nonsensical. And the boy's argument is ridiculous. A six-foot turkey isn't scary. A six-foot turkey would be terrifying, full stop. Puffed up with display feathers, it'd be like facing off against a bird bigger than your dining room table with a waddle the size of a clown shoe telling you it doesn't like where you're standing. An average unarmed human would yield eagerly. 
The Velociraptor fossils are laughably unlikely as outlined above. The first quality and visibility would require years of preparations by a well-trained preparator, yet it was discovered beneath a few brush strokes of sand. The second, also fully articulated, discovered by simply detonating a cast device here and there around the Badlands, is also beyond unlikely. It's in fact implausible. That's three big unlikely truths we are asked to accept all at once. Sounds like an awful scene, doesn't it? But it's not. For all its mistakes, the character development, the pacing, the dramatic tension, and the humor are extraordinary. It's a masterpiece. How can a scene that's so flawed be so perfect? Somehow this contrived mess of, of inaccuracies work perfectly to clearly illustrate who Dr. Grant is, why he's awesome, what velociraptors are, and why they're awesome, and we exit the scene with an empowered hero we can root for. Furthermore, the scene foreshadows the rapacious Velociraptor and presents Grant's character traits, namely that he's an old-school paleontologist with some newfangled ideas on dinosaur behavior that dislikes children and couldn't operate an iPad without calling his public library for tech support. As well, this very subtly sets up two significant moments later in the film. First, Grant suggests that Tyrannosaurus has weak visual acuity. You keep still because you think that maybe his visual acuity is based on movement, like a T-Rex, He'll lose you if you don't move. This detail informs Grant's strategy for survival during the Tyrannosaurus' attack on the Land Cruisers later on in the film. And he also says, and that's when the attack comes not from the front, but from the side. From the two other raptors you didn't even know were there. This fittingly describes the Velociraptor attack on Robert Muldoon. While Modoon focuses on hunting a Velociraptor, he's ambushed by another raptor he never saw coming, which resulted in the fan-favorite moment and famous last words, Clever girl. <laughs> this quick scene is so tightly connected to significant moments throughout the film, and yet has its own tension, humor, foreshadowing, and exposition. It's a terrific scene done exceedingly well. This common quote between the film and the novel drops an anchor in both texts, giving audiences a single moment to stop and appreciate what makes a document classically Jurassic Park. Any franchise that wants to live up to the quote original need only look at this moment to see the quintessential qualities to define the brand. This scene gives us an old-school dinosaur expert and velociraptors who are menacing, formidable foes in a world where air-filled contrivances are easily digestible because they masterfully serve character development, pacing, dramatic tension, and humor. And that's the kind of Jurassic Park I'm always excited to see. I hope you like that closer look at the text in the film and maybe what it takes to make something that's truly Jurassic Parky. Also, a giant, giant thank you to my special guest and good friend, Victor Yates. Thanks, buddy, for coming on. I really appreciate it. it turned out awesome, bud. And I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. This is your invitation. Email me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, like, I don't know what books you've read. If you've read it and you loved it and you want to talk about it, let me know. Or else I, 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 don't, I don't know who has who, read it. I can't, I can't tell <laughs> just by looking at you as much as I wish I could. So if you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book or also not the book all you like. 
Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens Funny Pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. And you can find links to all that package in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me on my Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning in to the Jurassic Park cast. Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park. Until next time. Darkness spreads across the land A thousand years unending torment Feel your hatred take command